0: You're listening to The Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Andrew Lee, MP. Andrew is a member of the Australian Federal Parliament, where since 2010, he has represented the seat of Fenner. And he is currently Labour's Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities. Before politics, Andrew was a professor of economics at ANU, a corporate lawyer, and an associate to Justice Michael Kirby when Michael was on the High Court. Andrew is the author of multiple books, including Disconnected, Battlers and Billionaires, The Economics of Just About Everything, The Luck of Politics. Choosing Openness, Random and most recently, Innovation Plus Equality, co-authored with Joshua Gans. I had the privilege of working for Andrew for about 10 months in various capacities while I was at university, and it was a formative experience. I admire Andrew for his combination of intellectual fearlessness and a utilitarian compulsion to improve the world. I think this marks him out as a special parliamentarian. We had a great conversation about his new book. Without much further ado, I hope you enjoy. Andrew Lee, thank you for joining me.
1: Absolute pleasure, Jack.
0: The uh, the only sitting politician that I allow on the podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a rare honour. Thank you.
0: I thought we'd begin with a bit of a twist. You have a podcast called The Good Life Podcast. And at the end of every episode, you ask your guests the same six questions. I wanted to take this opportunity to turn the questions back (laughs) on you, (laughs) just as a way of sort of introducing you. I mean, I will already have introduced your CV, but you as a person. So the first question we'll start is, um, uh, what piece of advice would you give to your teenage self? Enjoy the moment. I think I was very concerned
1: as a teenager to plan a career and to do things that would be good in the future uh, and less focused on just having great fun as a teenager. I suspect I grew up a little bit too fast and, and was sort of one of these kids who was a, a, an adult at age 10. Uh, and probably if I had my brothers again, I would play and explore a little more, try a few more pathways uh, at that stage of my life.
0: Why did you grow up so fast? Was it your personality or were there things in the environment?
1: Yeah, standard type A personality, oldest child syndrome.
0: Yep. (laughs) Next question, what's one thing you used to believe that you no longer do?
1: I think I used to believe that data and empirics would answer everything. And I'm increasingly drawn to uh, notions of the importance of uh, storytelling. Uh, And particularly, I guess this is characteristic of a shift from uh, academia into politics. Uh, academia, particularly economics, is very much about what evidence you can bring to bear yeah. uh, and the rigor of that evidence. Um, politics is much more about persuasion and the art of story to, uh, storytelling. Uh, and I'm drawn much more to the uh, to, to the power of stories, uh, not just to make a case, uh, but also to enrich our lives. Um, great stories are a, are a thing of beauty uh, and one of the the real delights of. Pod- podcasting has been finding so many good stories out there.
0: Yeah. So stories as a means of persuasion and enriching our individual lives. What about stories as a method of understanding the world?
1: Yes. I mean, I think stories certainly unlock a lot. Uh, On my podcast, The Good Life, I was speaking this morning to a Zen Buddhist teacher, Frank uh, Ostasecki and Frank talked about uh, moving towards things you fear. But he didn't talk about that directly. He talked about it through the analogy of putting up telephone poles, uh, where apparently if a telephone pole is put in and it's looking a little wobbly, uh, the best thing you can do if it starts to really wobble isn't to run away because chances are it'll hit you in the back. It's to go right up to the telephone pole, hold it firmly and stabilise it. Uh, And that analogy is so much more powerful than any intellectual argument you could make for moving towards your fears.
0: Third question, when are you most happy?
1: When I'm with my three little boys in the Canberra bush. Uh, which is out the back of our place. Yeah. Uh, I'm in the bush every day as a as a marathon runner. I run about a, an hour a day, uh, and to have them with me in the bush is just magnificent. We actually took a tour uh, on on the weekend um, through our local bush uh, with a uh, an indigenous guide, uh, a bloke by the name of Tyrone Bell, uh, and and that again just opened all of our eyes to uh, to to what's interesting in the bush, the different plants, uh, Tyrone showed us some of the uh, uh, markings on the trees made by uh, uh, Indigenous peoples in the past that points in different directions. Uh, there's something deeply grounding about being in nature.
0: You seem you seem like you'd be a very good father. <laughs> Are there any... I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember any lessons you've tried to consciously impart to your boys recently in the last, say, one or two years?
1: Uh I'm the hardest thing I find as a dad is building resilience uh, because obviously you can try throwing them in the deep end, but if that goes badly, then you haven't built resilience, you've built fragility. Yeah. Uh, so that that notion of how to create, in Nassim Taleb's phrase, anti-fragility. Yeah. Uh, so so that's the thing I'm constantly struggling with: how to push my boys a little outside their comfort zones. But not so far outside that they then retreat back again. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've gotten, gotten it right. Perhaps when the last of them leaves home, I'll uh, I'll feel as though I've mastered father fatherhood.
0: Yeah. In a, in a world of uncertainty, that seems like it'll always be a judgment call.
1: Yes, exactly. And <laughs> and I make so many mistakes as a dad. Like yeah. I'm just every day um, saying things, doing things uh, where you know I put my head on the pillow at the end of the night and think, oh, I could have done that better. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm a more I'm a more conscious dad I think than than i the, than I was uh, twelve years ago when I started the job so yeah. uh, you know like any like any job uh, you get better you get better with experience uh, <laughs> the challenge is uh, uh, getting better faster fast enough to have a good career
0: fourth the good life podcast question what's the most important thing you do to remain physically and mentally healthy Oh got to be running yeah I could have answered that for yeah, you, you <laughs> do you have any guilty pleasures
1: uh, I uh, I have been going overseas to run uh, the Indigenous Marathon. Sorry, the, uh, the the World Marathon Majors over the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, there's six of them: um, <clears throat> Boston, Berlin, Chicago, London, uh, Tok- Tokyo, Tokyo, and New York. Um, so not everyone would think of running a marathon as being a guilty pleasure, but uh, dashing overseas uh, on a, on a uh, frequent flyer flight for, uh, for uh, a weekend to run a marathon is, is pretty yeah. fun for me.
0: <laughs> Have you done the New York yet? I have, yes. Yeah. I've done all six of them, yeah. all
1: wearing the Indigenous Marathon uh, Project Supporter singlets. So um, Rob DiCostello got me involved in that and, and being part of that community and that that network um, brings a, a special pleasure yeah. to,
0: uh, to running. I did the New York uh, two years ago with a mate as part of the Aussie contingent for Movember and coming from Queens back into Second Avenue, you feel like an Olympian. Mm, the mm. crowd is just roaring, handing you bananas or Gatorade or whatever, and it's such a such a special event. It's yeah. it, It's
1: astonishingly good. And, and what's amazing about Rob <clears throat> is he uh, makes it the capstone event for the Indigenous Marathon Project, despite the fact that New York robbed him of ever being a sitting world champion for the marathon. Yeah. So as we know, Rob held the marathon world record for a couple of years in the early 1980s, uh, but that was only recognised after the fact because New York had been setting a course which was slightly too short and so the world record time which had been run in New York mm-hmm. was regarded by most people as being the world record. As a result Rob didn't get the appearance fees that he should have gotten uh, for uh, for being the world, cha- world oh, champion <laughs> because the New Yorkers had the course too short. So <laughs> what an act of grace to then every year take a dozen indi- indi- indigenous <laughs> runners to the New York Marathon, the very marathon that dudded rock back in the <laughs> early 1980s
0: final the good life podcast question which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life
1: oh my parents they're great uh, just such relaxed uh, a relaxed mum and dad and and that sort of that that real ability to to love fully to encourage to be curious uh, and to guide by asking questions rather than by telling. Uh, I I don't ever remember my parents shouting shouting at me, uh, you know, raising their voices in the in, in the household. And yeah. uh, uh, the the opportunities they gave my brother Tim and I in terms of travel and the and the rest were uh, were, were astonishing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I suppose my my parenting is uh, to a large extent just an attempt to, uh, to to live up to what my mum and
0: dad gave me. Let me add two of my own questions. Uh, the, f- the first is sort of a bastardization of Peter Thiel's famous contrarian truth question. So what's what's one thing you hold to be true that very few other people believe? Uh, this is a tough one for a for a sitting politician.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm just uh, I'm less worried about the the politics of it than uh, than than just thinking through. Uh, I mean uh, for all that I've said about the power of storytelling to persuade, I think I do have uh, a pretty strong scepticism of the efficacy of any given social program. Um, so, if you if you describe to me um, a, a government a government program that sounds good, my intuition will be to say um, that that sounds great, but it probably won't work. Um, And this is uh, known as as Rossi's Law after the sociologist who who first coined it. Um, And um, one of my heroes, the late great US Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, used to adhere to it as well. But I don't think most people in in public life or the general public do. I think there's a tendency to believe that most programs are efficacious. Mm. Uh, My reading of the evidence is that while I would love it to be so uh, I don't I don't believe it is uh, which is why I'm a passionate advocate for more randomized trials in social policy
0: that's right the wicked thing is that you never truly know whether or not a social program is efficacious if you don't have a true counterfactual
1: Precisely. Yes, yeah. and the the story of medicine should give us pause on this. Mm. You know, the majority of drugs that look great when they come out of the lab do not pass through uh, stage one, two, three clinical clinical trials. They fail at some point along that way. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure that our social policy labs are any better than the uh, the, the cancer drug labs uh, in in producing uh, effective ideas. Yeah. So. Test, learn, adapt ought to be Mm. the mantra for uh, for how we do a whole lot more government policy.
0: Or if you need another reminder, the medical journal, The Lancet, is named after bloodletting.
1: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) A practice discontinued um, thanks to a randomised trial just a couple of decades after The Lancet began publication.
0: (laughs) So the day after the 2019 federal election, I sent you a message of commiserations. I was feeling a bit down that day. I wanted Labor to get up. I, I prefer Labor's policy agenda. I can only imagine how you would have been feeling given you were part of that team. You strike me as a very naturally optimistic person. Do you ever have dark moments and what do you do to stay strong? Uh, there was certainly a dark moment. I
1: think uh, not only because I wanted our ideas to get up but also because I think it posed a challenge to anyone who believes deeply in... Uh, oppositions taking a serious policy agenda to the election. And in the same way that John Hewson's loss in 1993 led to small-target politics for a decade, my fear is that uh, some will be, will be urging... Both sides of politics not to take serious agendas to the uh, to, to the next election. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think would be a, a profound disservice to the Australian people. I think elections should be a battle of ideas, and and governments uh, should be ready to govern if they if they win. Uh, so so the the work that uh, we had put into developing uh, a. a carefully costed well thought- out policy agenda uh, was uh, was was what made me most disappointed I'm uh, ambitious for labour but I'm even more ambitious for the country and so I think it's vital that uh, that Australia has has an ambitious government. Um, you look around the world right now and the, the lack of leadership from the great powers on big global issues creates an opportunity for a middle power like Australia to play an outsized role uh, but I don't see us doing that uh, at, at the moment and, and I think that's a, that's a real pity. Mm. Uh, you didn't. You, sorry, you asked me about uh, staying uh, about positivity. Mm. Uh, you know, the biggest uh, silver lining to me of the election loss is that I've I've watched many uh, minister ministers and uh, and and parliamentary secretaries and seen what that uh, does to their family lives. Uh, you know, rule of thumb: you become a parliamentary secretary, you lose one of your weekend days. You become a minister, you lose both of your weekend days. Um, so for the next three years, I will get to have two weekend days every week with the three little people who are most important to me uh, through some really important years of their upbringing they're now seven ten and twelve yeah. uh, so so that's that's pretty amazing to have uh, and uh, and and one of the things that I guess keeps me grounded when I think well, it would have been nice to be uh, implementing uh, a, a positive, progressive policy agenda right now mm. as, as part of a part of
0: a Labor government. Mm. My final uh, general getting-to-know-you question. You studied arts law undergraduate at Sydney Uni and then later you did your PhD at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, I once heard you give a speech while I was at uni which kind of changed the course of my life, which is that mm. you would rather take the incentives-based framework of an economist than the rights-based framework of a lawyer as a means of effecting social change. It it reminds me of a quip by Paul Samuelson, who I think he once said something like, I don't care what the laws or the constitution of a nation are if I can write its economics textbook. But if you could go back in time or, or if you could give some more advice to your teenage self, would you have preferred to study a quantitative degree undergraduate? probably
1: yes like I and mean, I think my so my advice to young people when they're choosing uh, courses is twofold uh, choose uh uh, professors rather than course descriptions because a bad professor can write an incite, uh, enticing course description. Uh, yeah. So think about uh, talk, talk to people and find out what the reputations are of, prof- of good professors and go and study with them even if their course descriptions don't immediately grab you. Um, secondly, don't study things where you would otherwise read the course books for leisure on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're an, an American politics buff, for goodness sake don't go and study a course about the American presidency <laughs> uh, just Go and sit there on week weekends and read Gore Vidal's Lincoln and uh, uh, the, uh, Remnick's uh, Obama bio, biography, and, and that, that yep. will give you enough of a flavour of things. Uh, but very few of us uh, wake up on Saturday morning and think, "What I really need to do is uh, open Maskell, Winston, and Green's microeconomics textbook." <laughs> or you know, wouldn't it be great if I if I was uh, was getting into learning some more matrix algebra, and so I could uh, really na- nail uh, a particular econometric function? Yeah. Um, those skills, though, are enormously important. One of the reasons that economics has made huge inroads in uh, understanding a whole range of social science questions is uh, its high degree of, of uh, <coughs> technical rigour. Uh, so acquiring that, I think, is, is pretty important mm. for anyone who wants to make a difference as a social scientist.
0: Mm. About four years ago late 2015, maybe early 2016, I'd started thinking a lot more about automation and the future of the workforce. I was working part-time and casually in your office at the time. Uh, So, of course, I was thinking about these ideas because of the heady intellectual atmosphere. And it struck me that a lot of people say that to worry about Automation or AI replacing jobs is just a modern version of the Luddite fallacy. And at every step along the way, people have resisted technological change, but technology has created new unexpected jobs and, and the world moves on more productively than ever before. But I was thinking to myself whether maybe this time really is different and there's something so qualitatively different about the, the coming technology mm. and AI mm. and automation that might mean that we see a, a different response in the workforce. And I remember asking you, you know, th- the most extreme example of this is the singularity, where we reach this point where technological change becomes, you know, explosive and, and recursive and, and human life is changed forever. And I remember asking you, you know, what happens if we reach the singularity? And you said to me, at that point, all we worry about is redistribution of wealth. Um, a lot of people have this anxiety. I, I recently had Bob Schiller on the podcast. Mm. He, he just has a book out called Narrative Economics. A great episode if anyone hasn't listened to it. <laughs> Thank you. And he argues that one of the things that worsened the Great Depression were these narratives about technological unemployment. Mm, mm. That was actually the phrase that people used back during the 1930s and that if this narrative ever rears its head again, we could fall into a deep recession. So there seems to be this anxiety that... Technology promises this future that we want to be a part of, but we're not sure whether we'll get the benefits of that Mm. future. You have a book just out with Josh Gans titled Innovation Plus Equality. That sounds a lot like a recipe for a future that I want to be a part of, but is it a utopian vision?
1: We don't think so. We think it's a realistic vision. Uh, And our vision is, to be clear, one that has uncertainty at its heart. So the economist Frank Knight famously distinguishes between risk, which are mm. uh, uh, th- things things about the future that we don't know but we can parameterise. Uh, so, for example, you might think about uh, a bag of apples, which is half rotten apples, half crisp apples. Uh, when you put your hand into the bag, uh, you don't know whether you're going to get a rotten one or a crisp one, but you know that it's 50-50 rotten crisp. Uh, and he distinguishes that from uncertainty, which is where you know the bag has some rotten and some crisp apples, but you don't know the percentages. Uh, it might be 90% rotten, might be 90% crisp, uh, you simply don't know. Uh, we think policy needs to take into account uncertainty, and, and one of those uncertainties is we're simply not sure uh, as to whether the, the future is going to be hunky-dory on the job front, jobs front or might generate the, the concerns raised by your uh, singularity example, uh, in which suddenly artificial intelligence is able to do everything better than humans current, currently are. Uh, yeah, various indicators pointing either way. Uh, the There's a lovely study of the impact of ATMs on bank teller jobs in the United States, which finds that, uh, in fact, banking jobs don't disappear after ATMs. The, the jobs simply go into uh, in, into serving customers in other ways. Uh, but then you have the example of, of AlphaGo, uh, where now Google's Go playing machine uh, the is so much better than the world's best human player that the gap between the world's best human player and AlphaGo is as large as the gap between the best player and uh, an amateur player. Um, so the we ha- there's certain areas in which computers look on, uh, w- if they were self-aware, would look on humans' ability much the same as we look on the intellectual powers of our pets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do need to recognise that the future uh, may have a... Uh, an optimistic uh, scenario for jobs, which is which is what we've seen you know, right through the 20th century, contrary to predictions of people like Keynes and Leontief that there would be mass unemployment resulting from technological change, but also the possibility that perhaps some of these technologies really do take off uh, and take off more rapidly than other industries are able to generate jobs. And so Joshua and I argue that it's important to have policy settings uh, that are a form of social insurance uh, that allow society to be ready for either of these uh, these possible futures. Mm.
0: Let's go back to Knightian uncertainty. So this is one of two ideas which pervade the entire book. Mm. Have you heard uh, Keynes's articulation of the same idea?
1: No, how does Keynes put it? Put it?
0: So this is from 1937 in, in a response to critics of the general theory. And the quote is something like, when I speak about uncertainty, I'm not referring to the sort of uncertainty you see in a game of roulette. I'm referring to the uncertainty in answer to the question, what is the probability of European war? Or what will the price of copper or interest rates be 20 years hence? About these what matters... a
1: 1937 question. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and he, he goes on, about these matters, there's absolutely no scientific basis on which to form any calculable probability whatever. We hmm. simply do not know. So that was 1937, but I think he actually... That quote was from 1937, but I think he originally discussed the idea in his treatise on probability in 1921. So he and – because Knight's book, Risk, Uncertainty and Profit, was published in 1921. Hmm. I think they independently came on this idea. I was so happy to see it in your book because it's an idea that economists have sort of forgotten.
1: In the last mm. century.
0: Well, it is striking when we look at job loss that people put
1: a lot of faith in this Oxford study, which says that yeah. 47% of jobs can be computerized, uh, and for- fail to kind of look at the fine print uh, where the authors start off by hand coding occupations into will be computerized. And won't be computerised. In other words, they, they put 100% probability on some jobs being computerised and a 0% probability on others. <laughs> and, and jobs like um, marketing and accountancy are in the will be computerised category despite the fact they've enjoyed pretty rapid growth over recent years. Yeah. Uh, and then they take that hand coding, uh, use an algorithm to apply what they've done to seventy jobs to seven hundred jobs, uh, and publish the, uh, the the whole table. Uh, I don't share any of that confidence that we can put a, a precise percentage on job loss. I think yeah. uh, trade and technology tend to have discontinuous effects. You look at the the impact of the. Of uh, China's entering the WTO at the, the start of the millennium on the US manufacturing sector, significantly larger than, than people anticipated. Um- Conversely, uh, anticipated job loss uh, caused by driverless cars has been slower than we than, than we, expect, we expected. Uh, you've got driverless trucks that BHP and Rio are driving around uh, mining sites in the Pilbara, uh, but most experiments with driverless cars right now still have a safety driver uh, sitting in the passenger seat, mm. which means mm. there is there is still exactly as many jobs. Yeah.
0: So let's dig a little deeper on why. The Oxford study, for example, is a futile exercise. Why? Why is the future radically uncertain? Uh,
1: because that's the way in which job change and
0: technological change tends to
1: tends to work in uh, yeah. in, in jumps and uncer- uncertain leaps. And so, y- if you're a young person planning for for that. Uh, you don't want to uh, take the example that uh, uh, is given to uh, to Benjamin Braddock, the uh, the star <laughs> of uh, of The Graduate. Just go into plastics. Plastics is the future. I've got one word for you: plastics. Yep. Uh, but instead, you want to look at a different Ben. Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was not only one of the uh, the, the great polymaths of, uh, of of America and the founding fa- fathers, uh, but also somebody who placed uh, a radical emphasis on self-improvement and on constantly learning new skills. Mm. Uh, So you want to have, in a world in which the labour market may change on you, Mm. you want to have a diversity of skills and a taste for life, lifelong learning. And, and we as a society want to engender institutions like MOOCs uh, to, to ensure that people are able to continue learning. Yeah. Uh, right now, for example, we don't have a lot of uh, accreditation of MOOC courses. There's not a lot of portability. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, recognition by traditional higher education institutions. But if we want people to continue lifelong learning, uh, then better uh, incorporation of MOOCs into our education Education system would be a natural way to go, mm. uh, because MOOCs bring down the cost of training very su- very substantially. Uh, they're going to be an important part of, of an, uh, a world in which we've got a bit of uncertainty about the future of jobs.
0: Mm. So have have anti fragile career capital.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, Joshua and I talk in the book about different models for vocational training. Yeah. Uh, people typically. Uh, turn to the German model of very specific training. Uh, I, when I was in in Berlin, uh, met with uh, the uh, Confederation of German Industry and uh, talked to them about their 200 Handwerk categories in which people are trained very precisely for a narrow technical occupation. Turns out that's terrific if your aim is to ensure that you have very low rates of youth unemployment and good labour market outcomes for people in their 20s and 30s. But then, when economists like Ludger Wusman have uh, looked through what happens to people in their 40s and 50s, it turns out that d- more general technical training is more effective. Uh, the Swiss have a model which, uh, which which Joshua and I are more drawn to. Uh, the Swiss uh, place more emphasis on broad skills, mm-hmm. uh, which allow uh, people to move as the, the, as the as the labour labour market shifts. Uh, so, whether you're talking about uh, the value of having a, a classics base in a in a university education, or a broad base in a technical in a vocational training setting. Uh, again, as you say, you want to be anti, anti-fragile in your
0: uh, your training process. Just to come back to this question of why is the future radically uncertain? Have you read Karl Popper's book, The Poverty of Historicism?
1: I've read about it, but I haven't actually read it. Yeah, what would so, I learn if I did?
0: So all you need to read is the preface. Okay, and. He has this lovely passage of a priori reasoning, where he explains why the future is radically uncertain. And it basically goes like this. The course of history is in large part determined by new technology. We can't imagine the technology of the future, since if we could, we would already have invented it. Mm. Therefore, the future is fundamentally unpredictable.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I love that. I, th- I think it uh, it, ne- it neatly encapsulates the sort of innovation that Joshua and I think we need, mm. and the way in which we, uh, we we ought to to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, and even when these things are invented, we're not very good at figuring out. How they're going to change the world? Uh, so, uh, so the uh, the iPhone comes along, and it's uh, uh, the, referred to by one critic as a not very good email machine. Uh, people are, are scathing about the fact that, unlike the uh, the BlackBerry, which dominates the smartphone market at the time, it doesn't even have a keyboard. Uh, fast forward, BlackBerry's lost nine tenths of, it, of its market cap, and the iPhones dominated the uh, the, the world smartphone market. At about the same time, the Segway comes out uh, this uh, this uh, scooter, stand up scooter with a gyroscope, uh, which people say will will revolutionise personal transportation, mm. will change cities. Everyone will get, a, get get around on Segways because they're so easy to uh, to, to manoeuvre on, uh, and. We fast forward a decade and the Segway is uh, essentially nowhere. Yeah. It's used by tourists and a few cops. Uh, and it's not its not even obvious to brilliant people at the moment after those things have been invented yeah. what impact they're going to have, uh, let alone the the inability of most of us to, uh, to to think of inventing such a thing in the first place.
0: And the irony in those two stories is didn't Steve Jobs, the guy who invented the iPhone, <laughs> think that the Segway would change the world?
1: Precisely, yeah. exactly. So even Jobs couldn't, uh, <laughs> couldn't forecast that the way in which the yeah. Segway would uh, would have an impact. But uh, and it's not even obvious why it didn't. You know, it does <sighs> what it says on the box. Uh, we speculate, Joshua and I speculate, that perhaps it's just that... People thought it was a bit weird and felt a bit strange standing up there. Yeah, but bit. it's not like they're dangerous. I mean, police officers use them. You wouldn't put newbie tourists on them if uh, if if they kept on, kept on killing people. Yeah. Uh, but it's just a thing that didn't take off <laughs> the way the way in which we anticipated. Uh, and you know, the, the, you look back at the forecasts. The forecast of the impact on cities and, and on uh, jobs as drivers are are as, as radical as any of the forecasts that people are making for driverless cars
0: these yeah. days. <laughs> I remember the first time I visited San Francisco in 2016 and I had this Image built up in my head of this fantastic futuristic place. Mm. I, you know, I was very interested in tech and entrepreneurship. And we first got off the bus from LA and stepped onto the pavement, and a guy came past on a handleless Segway. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought this is so cool. But <laughs> I've arrived. Yeah, a lot less daggy than the uh, the very tall ones, though. Yes. Which just they just didn't seem to interact with the market. Yeah, no, yeah. that's that's totally yeah. right. I
1: mean, there's a there's a guy uh, near who lives near me who commutes on one of these uh, sort of skateboard, to, uh, electric skateboard type yeah. things, which again are just are operated by uh, force forwards and backwards. <laughs> they look very cool, but they just haven't taken it, off.
0: Yeah. So some people have a very grim Malthusian vision of the future, and they think that we've picked a lot of the low hanging fruits when it comes to new technology, and that. Productivity growth is going to continue mm. to flatten. Uh, other people are what you and Joshua describe as tech optimists. Which which camp do you broadly belong to?
1: We're tech agnostics. Okay, uh, we th- we can see a lot to be said for the uh, the tech opt- optimist view. Mm. Uh, that view is essentially the view that. Uh, innovation is driven by basic science. So, if you look at uh, the history of uh, Galileo's discoveries in astronomy, a lot of that comes from the quality of glassmaking, which led to the, the telescopes that he was able mm. to use. Uh, and so, if you uh, look at what the fundamental technologies of uh, AI uh, and, uh, and and CRISPR can can do, for example, uh, you might well have an optimistic view as to where technology is going to go. Mm. Uh, and the tech pessimists uh, take the view that uh, we're pl- promised flying cars and we've got 140 characters. <laughs> this uh, is the
0: uh, slogan of Founders Fund, Peter Thiel's. Exactly, exactly. Firm. I'm yeah. stealing
1: Peter Thiel's line, <laughs> line here. And that the uh, astonishing innovations of the 20th century in terms of everything from uh, indoor toilets to cars to planes yeah. uh, to penicillin were far more life-changing than the, what we've seen uh, over the course of the last 40, 50, 50 years. Mm. Uh, that since the early 1970s, we've had a productivity slowdown and that has that been due in large part to a, slow, a slowdown in, in innovation. Uh, there's challenges in, in measuring producti- productivity well, which I think makes this uh, even tougher. Uh, we know, for example, that there's been huge Social welfare benefits that have come from having uh, technologies like uh, uh, G- Gmail and Google, Google Maps and uh, uh, the, uh, the the range of uh, a, a range of free online products. Uh, uh, you look at all the apps on your smartphone, uh, which many of you, you listeners are probably use, using mm. now to uh, to listen to this podcast. Um, those those things don't, aren't well captured in GDP. So perhaps we're missing some some of the productivity, which makes it even harder to work out whether to go with the tech optimists or the tech pessimists. Mm. Again, we think because you're not sure, you want to embrace uncertainty. How do you do that through an insurance based approach? Mm.
0: Uh, although you say you're agnostic I feel like you lean slightly towards the optimist camp I
1: think to be a good politician, uh, Joe you probably <laughs> need to be a bit of a congenital optimist uh, much as in, in the way that if you want to be a good journalist you probably need to be a little cynical
0: <laughs> Well, I mean, in support of the optimists tell us this idea of a combinatorial explosion
1: So <laughs> this, is, this is the notion that uh, that if you look at the elements that have been discovered and you start multiplying together the possibilities of those elements, you end up with more possibilities than there are grains of sand on mm. all the beaches and all the world uh, and that we've only just begun to look at those combinations. Uh, and you can tell a similar story around uh, gene editing for example and the the possibilities that we might find if we look at different, uh, different gene combina- combinations. Yeah. Uh, so there's a huge amount out there to be discovered. And as computing power goes up, our ability to uh, mine those, those intellectual uh, uh, sho- shoals is, uh, is pretty significant. Mm.
0: In the book, you discuss an example of Paul Romer's where he uses the periodic table mm. and assume mm. you have 100 elements. Um, you can kind of get a sense of how exponential the combinatorial explosion really is if you want to mix just two elements together that's 100 multiplied by 99 Uh, and then if you want to mix three elements together that's 100 multiplied by 99 multiplied by 98 yes uh, and so on and it gets out of hand pretty quickly doesn't it Yeah, so
1: uh, I think as he puts it, once you get up to 10 elements, there's more recipes than there are seconds since the Big Bang created the universe. Wow, yeah. And then you know potentially it's uh, the the uh, the opportunities are limitless mm. uh, that's that's a pretty exciting notion uh, and it certainly suggests that there's there's reasons to be op- to be optimistic for the f- for the future yeah. uh, and also reasons to ensure that we have the policy settings right to encourage innovation mm. uh, so we're very big on the idea uh, that you uh, need to Uh, have a patent system that doesn't lock up innovation for too long, uh, that you might even think about dual length uh, patents, uh, uh, a model of uh, of short patents which have a lower lower, um, novelty bar and longer patents, 20 year patents that have a higher novelty bar so you don't get Amazon's one-click ordering locked up for 20 years. Uh, we also think that there's uh, a value to having competing research bodies uh, because the more uncertainty there is in the innovation process, uh, the more value there is to having a couple of different uh, research funding bodies uh, competing to try and create slightly different incentives for mm. uh, scientists and innovators.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about the patents for a moment because I think this is really interesting. Mm. In the book, you cite research by Alex Tabarrok who talks about a hump shaped curve mm. when it comes mm. to the impact of patents on innovation. Can can you explain that? Well, Alex's notion is
1: is quite simple. If you have no patent system, mm. then your incentive to create and publicise a new invention uh, is, is quite low. Uh, we talk in the book about the impact of uh, for, the introduction of forceps, uh, a technology which saves Lives will save, save lives today. There will be babies born born today, and mothers that live today, thanks to the invention of forceps. Uh, but it stayed locked up for decades because the family that invented forceps couldn't patent them at the at the at the time. Uh, so clearly, you want a patenting system to allow those those ideas to be uh, brought out in the public domain, and for the creators to uh, to enjoy some period of monopoly rents as a reward for their invention. Mm. But go too far, lock up things for uh, for for excessive periods, uh, and follow-on innovation becomes uh, becomes very tricky. Uh, things like the evergreening of uh, pharmaceutical patents, I think, has uh, damaged innovation in uh, in those contexts. Uh, it's important that people are, are able to uh, build on the ideas of of others. So. You, 20-year patents uh, I think are are appropriate and I like Alex's idea that perhaps you might have an 8 or a 10-year patent uh, where you haven't managed to clear quite as high a a bar for uh, for novelty and inventive step. Mm. So
0: it's kind of like a... uh Technological version of the Laffer curve,
1: precisely. Yep. Yes, yes, and he uh, he contends that in some areas, uh, again, going taking the example of uh, uh, Amazon's one cl- uh, patent, uh, twenty year monopoly that it got over one click ordering, uh, that that might be something that's on the wrong side of the hump.
0: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: We're allowing them to lock up that pretty straightforward business uh, pro- process patent uh, for two decades, mm. uh, impeded innovation rather than enhancing
0: it. Mm. Now, one of the mysteries of Western economic growth is that beginning around 1974, productivity growth started to flatten out. Mm. Um you, you mentioned the slogan of Peter Thiel's Founders Fund that we we were promised flying cars and instead we got one hundred and forty two characters. Of course the irony of that motto is that Peter thinks that Twitter's actually pretty good and that flying cars are just totally unfeasible in practice.
1: <laughs> but you get the And now we get <laughs> two hundred and eighty
0: characters. <laughs> yeah. But but you, you get the basic idea, which mm. is that there seems to be so much, you know, the iPhone 11's just come out. There's a lot of technological change, yet at the same time, it doesn't feel like our lives have become materially better than our parents or our grandparents, kind of the, the progress they experienced in the course of their lives. Um, what, what do you think? We've mentioned a few things, but what do you think broke in the 1970s? <sighs>
1: It's not obvious to me, from, from either introspection or reading the literature, why you see the turning point at that stage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, you had stagflation and the mm. uh, challenge that that posed to, to policy uh, policymakers, sort of, uh, in economic terms, the 70s are a much... Darker period than the uh, uh, the booming 19, 1960s, where you see the sense of possibility and promise uh, encaps- encapsulated uh, not only in uh, social social movements um, uh, for racial and and gender gender equality, uh, but also in the Sense that you know you can go to the moon mm. uh, and then when you move from the beatles decade to to the decade of uh, of the doors uh, you get a, a sort of a, a darker sen- sense uh, sense about that uh, we uh, one one notion is just that uh, as you get close to the frontier you need to throw more and more person power at it to keep on moving uh, so we have continued to to see. Moore's Law, in effect, uh, the doubling of, of computing power every 18 months. But if you look at the number of people in research labs that are required to, conti- to continue to get that doubling every 18 months, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's increasing massi- massively. Right.
0: So diminishing uh, returns.
1: Precisely, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to have an awful lot of scientists because the problems are now around, uh, are now much more complicated than they were. The heat buildup in these tiny, tiny little slices of silicon uh, is, is, is a much more substantial problem than it was when you were in the early stages of, uh, mm. of, of doubling. Uh, so, you know, I feel a bit like that Robert Barrow line that uh, every discussion of productivity ultimately devolves into amateur sociology. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I do think there's, there's, there's some combination of the zeitgeist and the, uh, the the diminishing returns point that you mentioned hmm. before until you move into a new frontier where you see the age of innovators fall uh, and the, the gains much more rapid in the early
0: years. Hmm. F- Frank Knight wrote in his 1921 book that uncertainty renders entrepreneurship inherently tragic. Uh, the other big idea that runs through your book is... Joseph Schumpeter's Creative Destruction, which mm. is also a poignant idea. Tell us what Creative Destruction is and how should policymakers handle it? So <clears throat> Creative Destruction is the notion that
1: uh, new firms uh, contain the uh, seeds of demise for, uh, for for many of the existing uh, firms. Mm. Uh, those of us uh, who... Uh, care about uh, workers undergoing painful transition uh, are naturally worried by the destruction aspect of creative destruction, uh, but it's it's very much very much there. Uh, you you can't create new ways of doing things without putting pressure uh, on the the jobs of some people. Uh, the challenge is how to make sure that we have those transitions happening in a smooth way. And I think about, uh, Joe, the transition from uh, uh, horse, uh, from transportation by horse to transportation by automobile. Uh, there is uh, a massive reduction in the number of horses used for transport in the United States. Uh, many horses are not bred. Uh, others are uh, sent off to the knackery prematurely. Uh, but there is... Uh, not an outbreak of, of unemployment as a result. Mm. Uh, those who've been working as, as farriers and uh, driving horses, uh, they manage to reskill, and the transition is gradual enough that they're able to uh, to find new opportunities. Mm-hmm. So the challenge for policymakers is to ensure that uh, when a new technology comes uh, comes along, uh, that the impact on the workforce is more like what happened to the farriers and less like mm. what happened to the horses.
0: I want to ask you a couple of speculative questions and the first is so people like Elon Musk, Sam Harris, Nick Bostrom are very famous for worrying about artificial general intelligence. Mm. Um, I've heard Mark Andreessen describe this as a modern version of the Promethean fallacy which is closely linked to the Luddite fallacy we spoke about earlier Mm. and in the myth of Prometheus was a titan who stole the secrets of fire from the gods and gave them to mortals and then was condemned to be strapped to a rock and every day have his liver pecked out by a uh, crow uh it would regrow overnight or by an eagle and Mm. the eagle would come Mm. back the next day um and there seems to be you know mark Andreessen, founder of nets of uh, netscape and mosaic and now venture capitalist argues that this is a a deep-seated psychological fear in humanity that will in our striving cre- overreach and create the thing that destroys us. Um, he thinks there's n- there's no-, no cause for concern when it comes to artificial intelligence. It's the latest manifestation of the Promethean fallacy. My concern, again, like with its impact on jobs, is that maybe this time really is different because hmm. we're dealing with a technology that is transformationally and qualitatively different to anything we've seen before. Where do you fall in that debate do you have concerns about artificial general intelligence?
1: I think there's a set of tail risks to which we're not paying sufficient attention, mm. uh, risks that uh, ultimately could destroy humanity, uh, and therefore, even if they are of they have quite low probabilities attached to them, uh, they're worth investing money in in reducing those those probabilities simply because the consequences are so large. Uh, And the consequences, not just for us, but for the accumulated future generations. Uh, If you take the approach that the lives of your children are as valuable as your own life, then effectively you're applying a zero discount rate to the utility of those in the future. That I think is the uh, is is the right approach. Um, so therefore, we ought to be concerned about a whole set of existential risks. Mm. Uh, so I like the fact that there are groups, particularly at Oxford and Cambridge, who are thinking about these these sorts of problems. But but also, increasingly, they're becoming mainstream. Uh, asteroid strikes. I think we've we've actually managed to do a reasonably good job of tracking tra- tracking asteroids. Uh, nuclear war is one that uh, that we could probably invest more resources in, particularly securing loose nukes. Uh, bioterrorism is, is uh, worth uh, investing uh, a little more in, in uh, curtailing those risks. And the risk of the singularity, while I would see it as, as improbable, has such large costs that, uh, that it's worth uh, having these sensible conversations now about uh, ethical safeguards around, uh, around artificial intelligence. Mm.
0: Would you recommend any books for the average person interested in that topic?
1: Uh, Well, since we're podcasting, let me uh, recommend Rob Wiblin's Mm. 80,000 Hours podcast, uh, which has uh, extraordinarily long, thoughtful and in-depth conversations Mm -hmm. with with a range of people thinking about existential risk.
0: He's been a guest on both our podcasts. Absolutely. Let me ask another speculative question. So... Housing, national housing bubbles are a creature of the post war era, really from the 1960s onwards. And I suspect that's for a couple of reasons. One is financial liberalization. The second is that national house prices indices only began to be published around the 1970s. We actually didn't have any indices before that, uh, which enabled the media to report on prices and attract speculative attention. I wonder whether it's mere coincidence that that period has overlapped with secular stagnation and whether there might be some causality in either direction. I have to obviously bring up housing bubbles in every episode I do, um, but have you considered this idea? Yeah, you do worry that uh, overinvestment in property
1: speculation can't be good for uh, creating more innovation in Australia, yeah. uh, that placing more resources in the hands of optimistic entrepreneurs is, is probably more use mm. than uh, a society which says the way to get rich is to buy a house, va- an investment property whose value you think will, uh, will increase. Uh, and you worry too when there's there's a, not only money but smarts going into that, where you see uh, too many bright people going into uh, to, to housing speculation rather than startups
0: or construction.
1: Uh, well, you you do you do want to make sure that you've got a uh, housing stock which is uh, facilitating the productivity which comes out of cities. Sure. Um, when I wrote economics of just about everything, mm-hmm. I did a little analysis looking at the impact on uh, productivity of moving from a regional area to a city and estimated that it was about 30%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ed Glazer's research would suggest that that's mostly causal. Uh, so cities have been one of the big drivers of Australian productivity and uh, building the uh, appropriate housing stock in cities is, is I think, a, a, a good way of, of boosting productivity in yep. Australia. So I'm more concerned about speculation on exactly Existing homes than construction of, of what I would, would regard as, as needed new homes, especially in a country which, is, uh, which has had a pretty rapid population growth uh, compared to other advanced countries.
0: Mm-hmm. You don't think there's been over-construction in the last five to ten years?
1: I don't see it. No, okay. it, uh, I, I think there's uh, appropriate, appropriately uh, rapid incre- increases in the housing stock, and uh, you we're missing that kind of uh, mid-level dens- density that you see, mm. especially in Paris, but also in a lot of other European cities. Those kind of four to six-story walk-ups, uh, we tend to have a mix of. Single-family homes and apartment blocks, uh, and getting more of that—that—that uh, that, that comfortable medium-density housing—is uh, not only a good way of ensuring that you're able to have people in having relatively short commutes to work, uh, but also ensures that communities can be pretty livable. Uh, that uh, that that local shops and cafes and and, and parks uh, can, uh, can 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 uh, be. Appropriately funded by the property taxes of those living living in proximity to them. Um, so, as a as a social capitalist, as as as, as well as a regular capitalist, I, I like that medium density model.
0: How confident are you that the West will solve its its productivity growth problem in uh, the next say five to ten years?
1: Uh, I'm pessimistic about five to ten. I'm optimistic about fifteen to twenty. Uh, the Current uh, populist uh, emergence, I think, is distracting many policymakers from the the core productivity challenges, uh, which I would regard put into three categories. I think they're around um, institutions, uh, particularly improving the quality of competition, uh, improving competition, and uh, and ensuring that uh, uh, you don't get an excess of, uh, of monopolies. Uh, and uh, making sure the tax system is appropriate for a uh, world of weightless production. Uh, infrastructure where uh, you want to have more public investment in public transport and uh, high-speed high speed broadband uh, and individuals where I think uh, human the qu- quality of human capital has declined over the course of the, the last two decades. Uh, on the OECD's PISA tests, Australia has gone backwards in every subject mm. every year we've been tested, um, to the extent that uh, that our our year nines are now well behind where their counterparts were at the uh, uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, so improving the quality of. Uh, vocational training, high school training, universities is pretty fundamental to, to boosting productivity. All of that is, is doable. Um, these are, the challenges I've just outlined I think are, are common to many advanced countries, not just Australia. Uh, but I don't see uh, an ambition to solve them in many countries right now.
0: What are you going to be doing in the Australian Parliament to make that happen?
1: <laughs> well, sitting on the wrong side of the speaker, there are uh, certain
0: limits as to
1: as to what one one can do. But you know, the right role of a professor turned politician is to be out there in in the ideas debate. Yeah. Uh, and increasingly, in the uh, uh, nine years I've been in politics, I've found myself reverting to type as uh, as an economist, uh, being aware that the, it it is important to uh, be. That part of the transmission belt from uh, academia into politics. Mm. Uh, politics is the confluence of power and ideas. I'm way down the idea ideas end of the spectrum, uh, and so I want to be spending as much time as I can talking to bright researchers and bright thinkers uh, about what ought to what ought to be done crystallizing that into books like uh, innovation plus equality uh, and
0: uh, and engaging in conversation on splendid podcasts like yours (laughs) Andrew Lee I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again I'm very glad that we have somebody like you in parliament thank you so much for your new book and for your time absolute pleasure Joe thank you Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For show notes and links to everything we discussed, you can find those on my website, www.josephnowalker.com. That's my full name, J-O-S-E-P-H-N-O-E-L-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. And you can find me on Twitter. My handle there is at Joseph N. Walker. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Ciao.